Hey there, and thanks for tuning in to Squatch Radio. My name is Connor Malley, and I'm your host. Before we get into the show, I wanted to share a little bit about me and why Squatch Radio exists. So I've been a passionate squash player for over 20 years, but what makes my path slightly different from your average squash player is I've also made squash my career. I've worn almost every hat and worked in almost every role in the industry. Some quick examples are I've gone from being a volunteer at a professional event to then becoming the CEO of the US Open. I've gone from trying to make Team USA to then becoming the director of all national team activity for US squash. And I've certainly gone from just playing on squash courts to focusing on how the sport can grow in the United States. What has been a big part of fueling my passion all these years are the fascinating, passionate, and dedicated people involved in our sport. So Squash Radio, well, that's just a way to try and help share those stories. We hope you like it. And if you do, please share, comment on any of the social media platforms or email us at squashradio at gmail.com. That's squashradio at gmail.com. Our biggest challenge is trying to get the word out. So any help is much appreciated. Without further ado, please enjoy the show. Squash Radio listeners, we've got a special announcement. We've got some big news to share. We are thrilled to announce that Squash Radio has its first ever sponsor. And we couldn't be more excited about this for many, many reasons. But here's three quick ones. One, Squash Radio has been a way to engage the squash community by sharing some great stories of the people involved in the sport. So to have a sponsor, partner, come in and support this initiative, and who is just excited to bring these stories to you all, is truly an honor. Number two, the owner and CEO of this company is a squash player himself and has spent the majority of his career earning his living as a squash professional. He has since branched out into the world of business, but like me, his core passion is still in the squash world. Number three, their products can not only make a difference in your lives, but also are helping make the world a better place for us all. So as I said, we couldn't be more thrilled to have this partner involved, and we will be sharing more about their journey. And you might just see their products at a squash court near you. More to come. What about this? This call is being recorded. For some quick background on our guest in this episode, here's a quick overview. We connect with Wendy Lawrence, who recently retired as the Division I head men's and women's squash coach of George Washington University. One of the main impetus behind connecting with Wendy is getting her thoughts on the announcement that has been sending shockwaves through the squash community, with top-tier colleges removing their squash programs from varsity status. Those schools include Brown, Stanford, and George Washington University. Wendy has a unique perspective on these developments, as during her tenure, she was part of the leadership team that guided the College Squash Association through some big changes. While Wendy is originally from New York City, she has made Washington, D.C. her home for over 40 years, and her efforts have helped put D.C. on the squash map. Wendy has distinguished herself amongst her peers with several leadership and sportsmanship awards, but also developing the GW team as one of the college's most successful programs from a ranking perspective. 
Off the court, Wendy is someone I've always personally turned to for advice, perspective, and is a pleasure to collaborate with on any project. We were honored to have Wendy as a guest, and we hope you enjoy our conversation. Hey there, Squash fans. I want you to give a big welcome today to our guest calling in from Washington, D.C., and it's the one and only Wendy Lawrence. Welcome to the show, Wendy. Connor, thanks for having me. Um, I'm excited to be with you. I'm thrilled to have you, and we've had so many conversations over the years, and you're just someone I've really admired and looked up to, and so it's great to be able to actually get one of these conversations on the record, so to speak. And one of the main reasons why I wanted to reach out to you at this point, and it's so timely, has to do with college squash. And for our sport, we've recently gotten some news that has been, I think to some of us, quite shocking, but you who's been so close to it, maybe not quite as shocked maybe concerned, but not as shocked. And that has to do with some of the programs and what the uh, the colleges and the direction the programs are heading. So I'd love to get your thoughts on it and maybe talk about your most recent role and what you've been doing. Sure. Yeah, the college squash uh, situation that has arisen in the last several months is concerning. To be clear, I'm ref- referring to three three college programs, very strong college programs have just been cut as varsity sports. Starting with Stanford University, they cut the women's varsity team. They don't have a men's varsity team, their club, but their women's varsity team has been in top 10 for many years. And I think they finished last season as number six in the country. So that was very surprising and disappointing. And then it was followed by Brown University in Rhode Island cutting both their men's and their women's team, along with three or four other varsity programs. And then just a couple of weeks ago, George Washington University, where I was the head coach up until last year, cut seven sports, including men's and women's squash. So disappointing trend. Most of the two of the schools claimed that it was due to COVID-19 financial considerations. Others just said that they were One other school said that they were just paring their athletic department down. But it concerns me. I know that George Washington, even though in their official announcement stated it was primarily COVID-related and financially related due to that, I know for a fact that a year and a half, two years ago, when I was still there, I had conversations with the athletic director that they were moving in the direction of cutting their programs down from 27 teams so this was not a true answer to COVID-19. It was uh, a decision they made to pare down their sports in general. And I believe that's, that's a problem. And I don't think it'll end here, unfortunately. I think as the COVID-19 financial situation starts to become real and, and they can account for the dollars and the millions and millions of dollars they've been losing, I suspect that squash and other sports will be the victim of cuts as well coming moving forward. When you learned the news of the GW program uh, being hit, what was going through your head when you heard the news? I knew that they were planning on cutting teams in over the course of time. I honestly didn't think that squash was going to be on the chopping block, primarily because of how successful the program had become at GW. It was arguably the highest ranked, nationally ranked team in the entire university and very successful 
a lot of student interest, a lot of fan coverage, arguably the second most uh, popular sport on campus to come and view, second only to basketball. Wow. And so I, w- I was completely surprised. They claimed that they were also looking at sports that were non-NCAA sports and non-Atlantic 10, which is the conference that all their other sports are in. And so that was used as another excuse for cutting. But I was heartbroken, to be fair. I was there for 12 years, from 2007 until 2019. I felt that we had built a very strong program, both in ranking and in ability to recruit uh, fabulous student athletes. We had a very strong international presence. Our men's team was about 75% international, and GW is a pretty international school, so mm-hmm. we always felt that that was a uh, big plus. Pro- big plus for the school. And but m- more than being heartbroken myself, I feel very. Uh, badly for the current student athletes, the kids who have been recruited to come, who now will have to decide whether to come to a school that doesn't have their sport. And for the hundreds and hundreds of alums who I've dealt with over the years, who are very active and very solidly behind the program, who have written to me in droves over the last couple of weeks, uh, how disappointed and angry and sad they are that the program will be cut starting next year. You also have, since you left GW, also had another interesting role, which I think is helpful to bring in the conversation because it just shows the potential cascading impact that these schools are, or the decisions they're making on the wider sport. Yeah. Um, so, so since you left, uh, share a little bit about what you've been doing. Sure. I left GW after this season ended in 2019. I retired, having nothing to do with these cuts or all because they were not evident at the time, but I decided to pass the torch and move on. And my husband retired after 30 odd years um, in the U.S. Senate. So we were going to go off in the sunset and do some traveling and things. And then I got a call from Georgetown University down the road here in Washington because their athletic department, interestingly enough, were in the process of adding women's squash as a varsity program. They have men's and women's squash as a club team for many years, but they were going to elevate the women's program into their varsity fold to to make it their 30th sport. So they hired me as a consultant for six months to help them develop the varsity program, work on budgets, recruiting students, student-athletes, hiring a head coach starting for this coming fall, So I worked with them from last November till this May, and everything was going ahead. We were about to post a job posting for a new head coach. We had dozens and dozens of interested student athletes inquiring about applying and being recruited. So everything looked great, and it was exciting to be able to work with a a new program and, and add squash. And then the pandemic hit, and everything kind of ground to a halt. Georgetown instituted a hiring freeze, so we were unable to hire a new head coach. And they were debating how hard a financial hit this pandemic was going to take on the school and the athletic department. So they held off making a decision about elevating the program. 
But interestingly enough, just two or three days ago, I got a letter from the athletic director, Lee Reed, and he announced that they would just be suspending the start of the varsity program. And instead of starting it this coming fall, this September, as they had originally planned, they have postponed it until further notice, hopefully a year from now when things settle down. So the good news is they have not decided to cut it as a sport, but they have postponed them. They're elevating it to varsity status at this time. That That is huge news to hear because I know this would be the, the ripe opportunity for any school to potentially follow the path of the other programs and make that cut. So that's actually throughout all this, some really good news to hear that Georgetown might not be cutting it. I, I would like to also broaden this out because you've been part of the various points in your career, part of the CSA leadership. And you've had the front row ticket to seeing how the sport has evolved. And just to give some context to listeners about where college squash was, say, 10 or 12 years at the beginning of your career at GW to where it is, the trajectory it was on now, if you can share some of that context. That is amazing news that Georgetown won't be cutting the program. Of all the news that we've been getting, that is just a huge win for the sport. But to try and give some context for our listeners who maybe aren't as familiar with the college squash scene here in the U.S., you've been, you've had a front row ticket. And starting with your role at GW, the evolution of college squash has really changed. And if you could just give a quick overview of a short down 15 years into, into three minutes, but talk a little bit about that background. I came in 2007 and started getting more involved with the official side of the CSA a few years later. And it, it eventually I became president of the Women's College Squash Association. Back then, there was a separate Women's College Squash Association and a separate men's. I was president uh, of the women, and Martin Heath of Rochester did a great job as the president of the men's association. And we spent two years working to make both associations into one And because uh, there was too much overlap and uh, a lot of wasted time and effort having two separate organizations, especially since 70-some percent of the teams were coached by one person, and so there was a lot of overlap. And happily, we were able to convince the membership to merge into one organization called College Squash Association. And the big change there was, instead of being an all-coaches-run organization, which was pretty unusual for college sports. We formed a board of directors and brought some outside folks onto the board. So there were five non-coaches as board members and four coaches, four active coaches on the board as well. So nine altogether, but for the first time we were led by non-coaches, which I think helped us become more professional. And then we also a year later hired a very talented, very hardworking executive director named David Pullman who's been the head of the executive director now for two years. And he's done a wonderful job being a liaison with U.S. Squash and helping with website development and outreach. And I think College Squash has been moving in uh, a direction that makes us far more professional. And so I think the cuts of these teams, while devastating, it's also, you have to also look at the fact that over the last several years, they've added four or five varsity teams 
to the CSA fold, uh, including UVA, which after only four years or so is varsity, is now their men's team is four or five in the country. Their women's team is top 10. Chatham University in Pittsburgh has just added men's and women's varsity squash, Bard College in New York, and I believe Denison, Univers Denison University in Ohio is about to add both men's and women's as varsity. So there has been growth, and hopefully this financial hit will be temporary and that other teams will add on. But it overall, the health of college squash, I think, is strong. Denison's where I went, and we're just so thrilled. That's been a path since uh, I was playing back in the uh, late '90s, <laughs> or you know. So we're about twenty something years uh, in the making. We're actually celebrating our 25th anniversary this year. It's been uh, a long journey to get to varsity status, and through the grapevine, I do hear that there are still plans to go varsity, and which is really exciting. And w one little tidbit I'd always love to throw in there is, but there's. Four, at least four presidents that of universities that are squash players themselves. And we can do a quick little trivia. Do you know all the presidents? Okay. I do know my alma mater, Vassar College. Their president, Elizabeth Bradley, played varsity at Harvard. So I get credit for remembering that. I believe John Fry, the president of Drexel, is a former chairman of the board of U.S. Squash. So I believe he is a squash player. Yep. And after that, I may be drawing a blank. So Chatham in Pittsburgh. Oh, okay. Right. And Dickinson. Oh, Dickinson. I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah, which uh, you can attribute to those were some of the programs that went varsity. And right. clearly, I, I think that these presidents, I'm sure you could say it's a passion and that they want to push it, but also quickly, just using Drexel as an example how quickly it's raised its brand and stature through using squash as a mechanism. If you look at Trinity College, which is probably the most prolific within the sport, what it's done for its its brand, I think it would, they would say it's been hugely additive. So it's... Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's what makes it so um, sad because you can look at it as... I think GW did. It's not an NCAA sport, so therefore it's not as important. But I believe that's a disingenuous measure of uh, the importance of a sport. I think there are lots of reasons why it is not an NCAA sport. And they had tried back about seven or eight years ago, women's squash was granted exhibition status within the NCAA. And they were given five or 10 years, I believe, to increase the number of varsity teams from 30 to 35 or they had to add five or six teams to be finally granted full NCAA status and they didn't reach that goal so they were dropped a couple of years ago and I think they would have required the men to add 10 varsity sports which is a very big hurdle to cross but I I don't understand really what the magic of being an NCAA sport necessarily brings to the program other than the ability to gain certain funds. But as most NCAA sports don't bring in money to a college, it's really only the big basketball, football, potentially some baseball. So it's to measure it by NCAA status in the college level, I think is a mistake. Agreed. I think squash has not achieved 
all the statuses that other sports have. The biggest one that we talk about within the sport a lot is the Olympics, but down level from that of the Commonwealth Games, which we are a part of, uh, the Asian Games, which you are a part of, but the, the Pan Am Games has even been, which the sport has been a part of for uh, decades now, is on the chopping block. I actually don't know where that stands for the upcoming games. I know that was out there. The NCAA status is certainly an interesting one to try and get, but I don't think in even if we had that status, I'm not, I, I think this is just a gap where I don't know. It's what would be the benefit to us uh, as a sport. So the average layman, the NCAA holds a lot of credibility in their minds and a non-NCAA sport may seem less important, but I th- there were lots of reasons why college squash uh, didn't want to join the NCAA. They didn't want their national championships to be dictated by the NCAA, where they would limit the number of teams to probably about 16, whereas now there are 40-some teams that get to play in the championships. So squash for a long time chose not to be an NCAA sport. It was only recently that they have pushed or even looked into the idea of gaining NCAA status. But as you say, I think squash brings so much to college athletics far beyond what any linkage to uh, the NCAA would bring. One of the things I wanted to uh, talk about today was also just your path and how you got to your career. And was squash always your dream job that you were envisioning and you worked and clawed your way to it? Or how was your path to get involved in the sport? Let's see. I My first career plan was to go to law school. I graduated as a political science major and had some considerable college debt. So I thought I would work for a year. And so I took a job as a paralegal in a Wall Street law firm. And in that year, I decided that being a lawyer wasn't for me. I was bored to death and decided that it wasn't what I wanted to do. And every summer since I was in high school, I had been a sailing instructor up on Cape Cod and really enjoyed doing that. So I took a job at an American sailing school that was based in Puerto Rico and did that for a year. Came back and got a job coaching part-time at one of the early public clubs in New York City. Back then, it was the Fifth Avenue Racquet Club, but it became part of Town Sports International, which has many clubs in New York and Boston and Philadelphia. So I started coaching just to make some money, and I coached part-time and also taught sailing out at City Island, which is an island off of New York, trying to figure out what to do. And then I got a job. I got hired as a page at NBC Sports. Uh, They were hiring a fair number of folks because they had been awarded the 1980 Olympics in Moscow. So it seemed great. I got a few assignments. One was working on a televised swim of Diana Nyad uh, as she was trying to swim from Cuba to Florida. I had met Diana. She was a squash player at, at my club in New York. She did it for exercise. And we met and she knew I'd done a lot of sailing. So she invited me. And so I parlayed that with NBC Sports as they covered her swim. And then I got a full-time job as a page working on different shows like Saturday Night Live and To Tell the Truth and all these NBC shows that were... And how'd you like it? It was great fun. But then 
President Carter boycotted the Olympics. And so my job was cut along with a lot of other newly hired NBC sports folks. Uh, so that was disappointing. And, but I still had to pay the rent. So I continued to coach squash. And I, at that point, never looked back. I got a, I was coaching full time, moved to their new facility up on 86th Street, the Uptown Racquet Club, which was this premier public club in New York, had 14 squash courts. And that's how I stayed in squash full time after playing in college. I played tennis and squash at Vassar, but never thought that would be a profession. And so I worked in New York at these clubs for a number of years, and they were opening a club in Washington. A fellow came from Washington named Paul London. He came to Uptown Racquet Club and tried to get some information because he wanted to start a similar public club in D.C., and I ended up talking with him. And at that point, my then boyfriend was looking to move to D.C. And I asked him if I could get a job with his new club. So I got hired and moved. And they opened a club called Capitol Hill Squash Club, which is right on Capitol Hill in D.C. And I moved to D.C. from New York and worked at that club for from 1981 till 1980. 1992 or three. And and were you part of uh, management in that case? Or? Yeah, I was head pro and also the general manager of the club. So I got to get more of a business uh, experience as well as a teaching pro. And the club was wildly successful. We had a very strong junior program. This was just around the time that everybody was switching from hardball to softball. Mm-hmm. So the courts were still hardball courts, but we had a big, thriving junior program. We had a lot of nationally ranked juniors. The biggest name at that point was Marty Clark, who was a mm-hmm. junior from McLean, Virginia, who trained with us and became U.S. national junior champion and went on to play at Harvard. and Team USA member, national yeah. champion. Yeah. yeah. And he had two sisters, Blair Clark and Stephanie. They went on to play for Harvard and David Moss and whole bunch of kids who played in really prestigious squash programs. So our junior program was up and running, and that's really where I found my niche is coaching juniors. And then when that club wasn't going to convert their courts into hardball, into softball courts, I met up with a few friends, and we looked to start a club in Washington that we could convert into a softball courts. And in 1999, we got investors and we started a club at that point was called Results Gym on Capitol Hill. And it was four international courts and a full-blown 65,000 square foot gym. Wow. And we were off and running with that. And I did that. I did the pro job there for a little bit, but I was getting tired of being the head pro. So we hired some folks and to run the program. And that gym is up and running still today. It's changed management, but I'm still an investor in the ownership of the building. So I still have a financial interest. It's now Sport and Health Club on Capitol Hill, Mm. but that's been doing quite well. And that's been a nice source of income for me as the club has grown over the last almost 20 years now. Wow. Quickly on that, because I don't want to take this for granted, the fact that you were able to get 
that project done and built and, and have it be successful. I think a lot of people, I, I get asked all the time about how do you build courts? And I, I know this was back in, uh, say, 20 years ago, but some of the principles still apply. So what were some of the lessons learned or what were some of the mistakes or you wish you had known when you were starting out? We had this beautiful, it was a former DC public school. And so just getting the rights to the building took us over a year. We had a lot of competition from people who wanted to develop it as condominiums. There was a Christian evangelical church who wanted to turn it into a church. And so it took us a year to get awarded the building because we had to buy it from the Board of Education of DC. But they felt that we were the best project and the best development for the property because we were not only going to be four squash courts, but more importantly, we were 60,000 square feet of a gym and we were offering space at discounted rates to three schools that were in the area, one private, one public, and one a church-based school. So we were hoping to develop this as a community gym. We didn't want to lease the space to a big chain if we could avoid it because we felt it was going to be a community gym. And it worked out really well. We didn't have a lot of competition in the neighborhood, except for the one gym, the Sport and Health, the Washington Sports Club. But they, at that point, had taken out their squash courts and hoped to compete with us more on their gym size. So it took a long time. It took a lot of effort to get the community behind us. But as I say, they've had 4,000 members, and it's been humming along for, a lo for this many years and doing quite well. I think it's a harder challenge now as real estate gets more and more expensive in cities like Washington and New York and all the rest, allocating seven, 800 square feet per court to a squash court in a building that you can fit 20 or 30 fitness people or aerobics classes or whatever. It's a challenge. I'm not sure we could have pulled it off today as we did 20 years ago, but it's still up and running and the courts are thriving. So we're happy with how it's ended up. You bring up a good point there that the challenges increase and especially from the capital that you have to put out in order to get the project successful. But I do actually think that there's part of it is finding that right fit and shaping the conversation. And I don't think squash wins if you're giving it the comparison of a gym or Pilates studio, especially Soul Cycle, like spinning, you name it. I don't think we we're going to be able to compete as effectively if we leave the conversation there. I do think by giving more context to comparison of a big sport like tennis, where on one tennis court, if you fit nothing else, you could fit eight squash courts. By that conversation, if you have eight courts and you can have so many more members that are coming through there. So I think part of that is finding the right fit. And my dream is I'm a rackets guy in general. I love everything from ping pong to court tennis. Tennis was my first sport and obviously squash. The more that we can have racket centers, I think that's a, a win for the sport. But you know, I, I think shaping that conversation is just helpful. No, I, I, I totally agree. I think the other important point and somewhat the elephant in the room is access to these clubs. Uh, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, our club, there's a fairly reasonably low initiation fee and then you they only tack on a $10 or so fee to, to play squash above using the other parts of the gym, which is quite reasonable. But I think it's still true that 
so much access to squash courts has been in private facilities or facilities that charge a lot more. And I think that's always going to be an impediment to the growth of the game uh, unless we get it into a more reasonably priced arena. I think it will continue to have problems, but I see that changing just, I don't know if, but New York City has been building some outdoor courts and just trying to get more access to the general public and not keep it closed in expensive public or expensive private clubs. You're 100% right. Access being uh, one of the biggest hurdles still involved in the sport. And that's why I think the colleges have been both a driver of the sport overall, but now when suddenly the potential existential crisis that's going on, to be honest, I'd never even thought about programs or colleges cutting programs once they're in. I, I really call it naive or I hadn't been around long enough to, to, to see that life cycle. But, you know, this is really perhaps over dramatizing it, but the existential crisis that we, we might need to figure out where do we want the sport to be in five or 10 years or 20 years and start pulling on one or because I don't think there's been a truly collective effort from our sport in that arena. Yeah, it's hard to predict the future on this. And obviously, with these three big programs being cut, there is definite concern that others may follow. But its I think we just have to wait and see how big a financial hit schools have taken once they're up and running. But you've got to expect that some of the smaller sports are the ones that they would target first. theres I will bring up this interesting narrative that has been surface since these schools have cut them. And if that is, if you look at the teams that have been cut by Stanford, Brown, and GW, it's not that they're only small, but they're also fairly non-diverse sports, if for lack of another term. It's, in the case of GW, it was rowing, it was water polo, it was tennis, it was squash. I at Brown, it was similar sports and similar at Stanford. So some people have raised the question whether their image of sports as being very white, did they decide to cut these sports because they were not as diverse as some of the other sports? And it's just a narrative that's out there now. I don't know if I believe that is the case, but it's been an interesting comparison to see what sports have been cut by those three schools. So a while back, were you wondering who our sponsor is? Well, the mystery is over. It's Pro Sport LED. Now for a new mystery. What do they do? As you might guess, they are in the lighting business, specifically the sport lighting business. We've known their products for years and love them. And you can learn more by going to squashradio.com LED. But here's a quick overview. First, let me ask you, how much thought have you given lighting at your sports center? Do you like them? Do they bother you? Or do you think they're all the same? Well, like many other products, not all lights are created equal. So how are ProSport LED lights different? Well, in more cases than you might imagine, one light fixture will be used for many purposes and often not the right reasons. For instance, you might find a parking lot floodlight 
also lighting up an indoor gymnasium or a standard warehouse ceiling fixture used for a squash court, which let's just say leaves people shaking their heads and rackets. So how does ProSport LED address these common mistakes? The innovators at ProSport LED develop custom solutions for each individual sport based on photometric studies as well as understanding the needs of all people involved in the sport, from amateur players to the professionals, but also from the spectators to the facilities team taking care of the building. They'll develop the most technologically advanced LED lights. What's also great about this advanced LED technology is it takes the standard features like being energy efficient with savings up to 70% on energy cost, instant on-off capabilities, which both help make them climate friendly, but then goes further by addressing three more problems that competitors don't. They cure any glare issues or being blinded by the lights while playing your chosen sport. Each individual slim profile fixture can be Wi-Fi enabled so you can control the lights from the phone in your pocket. And they are perfect for the digital first media approach by providing 4K quality and consistency for any film or photography needs. So do you want or know someone who wants to improve their lighting and go beyond standard basic lighting? ProSport LED has you covered your trusted source for sports facility lighting with advanced LED technology. These lights are the perfect solution for anyone building a new facility, but also easy to retrofit into existing buildings, likely saving you money in the long run. Look for links on our social media posts, or you can find out more info by going to squashradio.com LED. So an, another aspect of what we're talking about future developments is, is talking about women's role within the sport as well. And you've uh, clearly distinguished yourself amongst your peers with the amount of awards that you've won and, and how successful your program has been. But what do you see in terms of women involved in the sport and what that looks like? It's been something I've been interested in looking into further. Ever since I joined college squash, the number of women coaches has diminished uh, for a number of reasons. Some just retired, like myself. Others, their program transitioned. I know Wendy Berry was the coach for a long time at Wellesley College in Boston, and they transitioned from varsity down to club, so she lost her position there. But it's always been pretty noticeable that the dearth of varsity women coaches. And I've had conversations with U.S. Squash about this and others, and there's now been conversations headed up by Jim Zug to start a committee within U.S. Squash to look into how we recruit more women coaches into the sport. Right now, by my count, there are only seven full-time women's coaches in the sport total, and four of them coach both men's and women's teams, and the other three coach just women's teams. I think one of the stumbling blocks is that if 70% of the school administrations hire a coach to coach both the men's and women's team, uh, it seems to me they are more likely to hire a man to 
coach those teams and maybe an assistant female, but women are less likely and have a more difficult path to be hired as a men's coach. And that makes it more difficult. I know when I was hired by GW, they were ranked 30 something in the country, sort of at the bottom uh, on the men's side. And they weren't paying very much because they were a new program. So I think that they weren't about to hire a very expensive coach. So I lived here. I was doing other things. I had two kids in school. So I took the job at a salary that I thought was lower than it should have been, but I was eager to work on a new program. But I've known a lot of women's coaches who have applied for men's teams and haven't been given the job. So if there are 40 or 50 men's coaches and only seven women's coaches, I think there's a problem. Uh, there are far more men's coaches of women's teams than there are women coaches of women's teams. And I think that's reflected in all college sports, not just squash. So I'm happy to head this committee and, and look into how we recruit recent college grads into becoming coaches. I agree with those are the landscape right now. And I think, well, how can this spell opportunity? And one of the things with being a smaller sport, we can be are cohesive, but we could even be more cohesive. And what I mean by that is within the past decade, the merging of the PSA and the, the men's and women's tour under one umbrella, merging of the college, two college divisions under one umbrella, and with U.S. squash uh, leading the way in parity and prize money, I think it's starting to get those, that cohesion there. But I do think that really the outreach and, and, and recruiting pipeline just isn't occurring. And I, I can speak for myself that I fell into the profession of squash. I saw opportunity and I went after it. So I do think there's a difference if we start recruiting and making the pitch. In that effort, let's brainstorm. What do you see as the potential pitch of becoming a, a teaching professional or a coach within the sport for women? I think there's a lot of untapped talent. I think a lot of women never, it never occurred to them to go into coaching because so many of their, of the role models in their clubs back home or their high school teams have been men coaches and they haven't seen a lot of women's coach coaches. So they don't really have a role model. I think that's changing. I think there have been a lot of international women coming to the United States and taking on coaching roles, which is great. I worry that with the new administration, the Trump administration making those sorts of visas more difficult, that may slow down. I've, When GW was looking to replace me after I retired and they had a national search, I will say they had very few women applicants. So I just think the numbers aren't there. I don't know how much of it is discrimination. I think a lot well, of it is just numbers. But let, let's go down the thought exercise of how would we pitch a, call it a 22-year-old college grad? What are the benefits to, to getting involved in the sport? What have you liked? Oh, I've, it's been an incredibly rewarding time for me. As I say, I specialized in coaching juniors, which I think is pretty much the norm in most clubs, for example. And if you like working with kids, it's great. If you don't, it's problematic because most of your lessons will be juniors. It's a lot of long hours and it's a lot of weekend work. And if you're working with juniors who are tournament players, it's travel. So it's not a very, it's pretty hard to 
have nine to five hours in this profession, so that makes it difficult uh, for a lot of women, especially if they then decide to have families. Uh, it, it, the travel and the weekend hours make that difficult. Uh, but I don't think there's any reason in the world why a woman wouldn't be attracted to it, just as she would be attracted to being a tennis coach or a soccer coach or anything else. Yeah. Some of the things that really hit home for me, because I ended up being a teaching professional after college. I don't want to say fell into it, but I navigated into it. But you know, I, I going through it, I had to, I learned so much. I learned how to, despite my effort right now, communicate more effectively. And it's, <laughs> it was a very interesting challenge. I loved the sport, but then how do you then help a total beginner understand it? And you can't just say, do it like this. Uh, I just loved learning the, how do you break down a swing? How do you break down the mechanics of movement? And, and so it was just very much sharing what I've learned. And, and so that was a huge journey. And, and I, I would say also, I, I really appreciated being able to be on court and running around all day. Yeah. That was really, I got fit. It was probably the fittest I've ever been. And training my body to be stronger and maintenance. Now, I think I went on a curve from overuse, my body hurt to then the opposite of sitting at a desk that then it hurt from underuse. So I've seen the full spectrum, but, and the other part, so I learned a lot. I loved being physical, but the salaries there, I, I can't, this is by no means Wall Street banking investment level salary, but it's a, it was a healthy living. Yeah, yeah I, I, I think a lot of Young American squash players come from some of the top colleges in the nation. That's pretty under, understood. Ivy League, NESCAC, whatever. They're the top academic institutions as well as squash teams. And so there's a, some expectation of those graduates to go into more lucrative professions, whether it's grad school to be a MBA or a lawyer or as you say, Wall Street, whatever it is, that's always been a bit of a drawback. While the money is good, you, a lot of it is based on how many hours you're on the court. And generally, salaries are rather small, but you can make it up in lessons. So if you're injured, you're losing out on lesson income. So money is, while it's attractive, it's not what it might be in some other professions. I do think the advent of urban squash programs that have proliferated over the last 10 or so years, squash busters, street squash, and all the rest. There's a lot of potential to blend your squash expertise with academic work with these kids in tutoring and the like in community service projects. So I think that's opened up a lot of job opportunities for recent college squash players, and, and they found it incredibly rewarding. So it's not just private club jobs or college squash jobs, but I think there are a lot of opportunities to meld more academic pursuits with squash as well. Overall, the, the industry has really taken off. And just as if you're thinking of lacrosse or golf, uh, while we're not there from the, the zeros behind each one of those stats, if you have, you have an interest and a passion in, for squash and you could deploy your marketing skills or um, sales skills or everything. So I do think there's more opportunity. I know, we, I know you and I could talk about this literally all day, but there's, uh, I wanted to try and shift gears now and move out of squash world for a little bit and talk a little bit about you've been in DC for a long time now. And I think it's a hot topic in general. I'm not going to get into the politics of, of things at all. 
But what I do find fascinating, and having spent a little bit of time in Washington, D.C. myself, was just you, you've seen the changes that have gone on from, from the city where it was many years ago to where it is today. And I'd love just sharing that insight of, of you and your background there. Yeah, I, I've been in D.C. now since 1981, so it's been quite a while. I grew up in New York City and went to college just outside in Poughkeepsie and came back after college and worked in D.C. for a while. I mean, in New York for a while and then moved up uh, the ladder in the squash world and took a job in D.C. At first, I found D.C. to be like this small city, very different from New York, much more manageable, easier to drive around in, to get around in. I really liked it from the minute I got there. I, I, my, I moved down with my boyfriend, who's now my husband, and he grew up in rural Vermont. So he had no interest in living in New York. He had gone to college in Boston and decided that Washington was a nice compromise between New York and Boston as far as the size of a city. So he was happy and got a job in D.C. at the same time that I got my job at the club in D.C. So we happily both moved down and got married a few years later and have never left. It was back when I first moved there. It was financially hard hit city at the time. I don't know if people recall, but the D.C. government was under federal rule, uh, home rule. They were a lot of their powers were stripped and taken over by the federal government more so than they are now. And the city was in a bad way. It was one of the crime, the highest crime rates in the country. So it was a very different city than it is now. Things, they dug themselves out of a financial hole. And you might say it became at the expense of a, a much more gentrified city in a lot of ways, which I think has its problems. But it was far cheaper to live here and a far more relaxed uh, lifestyle here, I felt, than it was in New York. So I've been happy. I, I think I saw a big change in sort of the tone of the city. The next big step was when President Obama was elected in 2008. It brought a huge influx of young talent into the government. A lot of young people moved in to work in his administration, and I think it was a breath of fresh air as far as energy into the city. So it's been a great place. I my both my sons were born here, went to school in D.C., went off to college, and they loved growing up here. It was, it was a great move for us, I think, and even my Vermont husband has had a good time. He's worked for the U.S. Senate almost exclusively since he got to D.C. and has, a, has had a really good time working for the government. I've enjoyed it, and I think it was the right move for me. So not too dissimilar from you, I've, I grew up in, in New York, but then also found myself in D.C. for about four years and met my wife now down there. And so it, I love the D.C. area. It's just such a vibrant city. And I really, I didn't think I'd geek out as much on the, the architecture down there. It's just beautiful. I, it's architecturally one of the best cities in the U.S. So I definitely have a strong affinity for D.C. itself. And it's really just in the time I was there. I could see the growth. And so it's just exciting to see uh, a city like that take off. So one of the, the last things I like to do with each of the guests is move into what's called the quick fire section. 
This is where I'm going to just ask you uh, some of the standard questions I ask a lot of my guests. And if they flame out because of my questions, that's totally fine. Uh, if they go nowhere, but to put you through the quick fire. I'll start off with an easy one. W- what is your favorite movie or documentary? Wow, my favorite movie. As geeky as it sounds, I would have to say Citizen Kane. My favorite documentary, it's interesting. I, I watch a lot of them. And oddly enough, I just finished a Netflix documentary on Frank Sinatra, which I thought was a lot of fun and interesting. So it may not stand up as my favorite, but it's certainly the one I've enjoyed most recently. All right. Do you recall the name by chance? I think it's just called Sinatra, but it was just released, you know, a month ago or so. So it's, it's still on Netflix. Okay. I like it. Yeah. So this next question, you can answer either with something or an activity. And the question is, what is something in your life that brings you disproportionate amount of happiness? And I can give an example if that's... Yeah, no, I think that the answer would change from year to year. But I would say now that my two grown sons are out of the house and living on the West Coast, I would say the fact that they've come east during COVID-19 and stayed with us for a couple of months while they work remotely has been wonderful because they've been out on the west coast for several years and we don't get to see them as often as we'd like so for the last couple of months it's been wonderful to have both my grown kids home and spending time with them no now you're gonna have to force them to listen to this this podcast (laughs) and then what what about is, is there whether it's an activity it could be just reading the new york times on a sunday is there anything that you like in your life to carve out that just brings you joy or happiness Yeah, I like, now that I'm retired, I've started to pick up golf again a little bit and try to get outside uh, in this pandemic-ridden universe, walk around, get some exercise, and still be somewhat competitive. So I've picked up golf again. I've played it on and off for 25 years, but I never, when I was working full-time, I never really got as much time to spend doing it. So it's perfect physical activity given the uh, social distancing required these days. Absolutely. I got into golf about 10 years ago, maybe. And I actually, when my wife and I were dating at the time, I thought it was like, hey, wouldn't this be a great time to spend together? And her and I love to golf together. So it's, it's fun. Now, next question is something that gets you fired up, like where you're just, and it can either be completely positive or negative, uh, just, just something that you go from zero to 100 in either direction. And it doesn't have to be in squash world, just anything, although it can be. So what is something that fires Wendy Lawrence up? I will say that I'm and have been all my life a pretty political person. Mm -hmm. My folks were very active politically and during the McCarthy period and the blacklist and all of that. And so clearly the current situation in politics has fires me up primarily in at this point with the current administration in a very negative way. But I think with the upcoming election, what's fired me up is ways to try to change that tide and and get a new administration. So I, without question, most of my energies now emotionally have been geared toward the current state of politics in the United States. Or do you feel like you're finding a healthy balance or an unhealthy balance between that relationship? <laughs> 
I think you have to ask me in November <laughs> where that falls yeah. right now. It's, I feel encouraged uh, in the last several months, but I also see what's going on in the United States with the virus and the economy, and that just drives me crazy. And I feel like, what can we do to turn this around? Well, I think this actually segues nicely into my next question. But you, it doesn't have to be around that topic. So the question, as I ask it, is what is a piece of content that's easy to find on the internet? So think YouTube or a website that has really inspired you. And it can be any speech throughout history or anything. It doesn't matter. Just something that is really, you watch on the internet and you're like, wow, that's inspiring and I want to share that. What was that piece of content? I am chained to a large degree to my phone watching news updates and streaming news services and Twitter feeds and all. So I'm not sure there's one particular format or platform. I, I'm a bit of a news junkie, so I'm following the news pretty heavily. I even will subscribe to sites that I'm diametrically opposed to politically, but I feel it's important to see how the other side is thinking and what they're saying. Mm -hmm. So I'm not getting fed just news from CNN or M C um, MSNBC or whatever, I'll watch Fox and all the rest just to understand the other side as best I can. But So there's not one particular platform. I'm barraged by news all day long, and it's only exacerbated by living here in D.C. I and mean, so many of my friends are have work in the government or in NGOs or whatever. So the topic of conversation lends itself to politics a lot here in D.C. So it's not one particular thing, but it's just absorbing it all in the in a given day. Drinking from a fire hose. I got it. My next question is, I'll give a little bit of context, is I don't know if you, uh, I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with uh, TED Talks. Sure. And there's so many that actually, that are so great and inspiring. But there was one in particular that was uh, by a gentleman called Simon Sinek, and it was Start With Why. And he just goes in, it's, they're only 15 minutes long, but he shares his his whole philosophy on just how important it is that we communicate the why, not just the how or the what. Anyway, that's a, a longer setup than I want you to imagine that you have to give a TED Talk. And the rules of this TED Talk for you specifically would be, you can't give it for something that you're known for. So for instance, how to hit the best forehand on the planet. Like you, we know that you're a great squash coach and have done that. It could be something either that we don't know about you that you would have to go uh, share or there's something that you've always wanted to go explore that you haven't had the time to and you get a chance to then talk about that at the end. So what would that TED Talk be for you? I think maybe the TED Talk would track back to my early interest in becoming a lawyer and how in many ways I regret not following that path, primarily because I think the social good I might have been able to do as a lawyer may be more important in the scheme of things in the world than being a squash coach. As much as I treasured my years as a squash coach, I worry about where we are in this country, and I think if I had become a lawyer, I might have been able to have more of an impact on where we are in this country politically. and economically, racially, and gender politics or whatever. I think that if I were to do this again, I would reconsider 
and see if my abilities would lend itself to being an, a lawyer and working in politics or having an effect on politics rather than being a sports coach in a what's perceived as, you know, a bit of an elitist game. Sure. And is there an issue or cause that is that you would want to drill down on or what is meaningful to you uh, if you could have had an impact? I think there are lots of issues, almost too many for me to name, but one that strikes me now and has for probably several years has been voter suppression. Mm -hmm. How clearly egregious the work of some folks to suppress the vote in this country, especially in the South, has really been apparent. And I think that's that was a big problem in the last election. And I see it now, obviously, with issues with the post office and voting ballot places and all the rest. I would say that would be the one issue that I would really be very interested in working on. I think depending, how, or depending on how much you actually like retirement, there's a maybe there's another calling for you. This is a act uh, act four for you or yeah. five, depending how you want to do it. Yeah, yeah. no, I, I had planned to actually move to a battleground state for a month or so before the election and and work on a campaign. But with COVID, I've got to be careful. I have a 95 year old mother who lives here in D.C., lives by herself with some help, but with my brother to get her food and stuff. And I can't really risk doing a lot of traveling and being exposed because I'm doing a lot of work with her. But once this lifts and everything relaxes a little bit, I hope to definitely do some volunteer work in that direction. That's great. So we're coming to the close of this interview. And the last question uh, I'll ask is, it's typically, uh, do you recommend any books or what's your favorite book that you would recommend to someone else? And I've actually, and given that I'm doing a podcast, I can that can be a book or podcast, but what is something that you would share with someone else that you've liked? Oh, wow. Um, oddly enough, it was a question I wasn't prepared for. I started to read a lot of old classics this summer, and I've been reading a little bit of Theodore Dreiser, just a lot of books about political activism back in the 20s and, and 30s, see how things are different there. I've also been a little involved in some boring beach reading, but in times like this, I think everybody should relax a little bit. I have about two years of New Yorker magazines that I'm trying to catch up on, so that has taken a lot of my time. They're it's a fabulous magazine, but it takes a lot of time to get through issues, so I took a stack of them up with me on vacation this uh, last couple of weeks uh, to try to catch up on some old magazines and some pretty useful articles. So that's where I stand in the reading department over the last year or so. Love it. Well, I think that draws us to, I, like I said, I know we, you and I specifically could go on for a long time now, but I'm mindful of your time and just want to say thank you so much for, for jumping on the call and, and sharing your story and Thank you for being a part of uh, Squash Radio history. <laughs> Connor, it's a pleasure when you call to ask to invite me to this uh, podcast. I couldn't have been more excited. I've always enjoyed talking with you. You're a pretty thoughtful squash guy on many levels, and um, I jumped at the chance. So thank you for the opportunity. I think I better leave on that note, because, <laughs> but you might have a job being a PR for Squash Radio. So um, 
on the side. Anyway, so thank you so much, and we'll tune in for another episode soon. All right. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you so much for your time today and for joining us on Squash Radio. We hope you enjoyed this latest episode. But before you leave, we just have one quick last message. As you know, Squash Radio wants to help tell some of the best stories from Squash World. But in order to do that, we want and welcome your help. Do you know a person or a story that involves squash that is interesting, funny, moved you, you care about, reflects your passion for the sport? Well, share it with us and let's try and get it out there on the air. You can email me at squashradio at gmail.com or reach out to us on social media. Again, thanks for your time and, well, until next time, be well and have fun.